Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Uh, Lisa and Nisa from the Keyword Podcast. Uh, we are very excited to be here. Uh, this is a very special episode for us. It's the first time we're talking to real life people and not pre-recording something. That's right. It's, we're so excited to be here at Fast 21 because our podcast was actually birthed from the Fast Conference. Fast 19 gave us the idea to create this podcast. Yeah, she was uh, driving home from the conference and she called me and said she had this great idea that she wanted to do a podcast for emergency nurses. Um, and she showed me this long laundry list of topics that she wanted to talk about. One that jumped out to me was something that said fingernail polish interferes with pulse oximetry. Um, and then when we talked about it, she said that she also vaguely knew that maybe skin tone affected pulse oximetry. So now fast forward to 2020 and suddenly we're in this era where being able to read somebody's blood oxygen levels has become more important than ever, right? That's right. So that's what we want to talk about today. Um, so we'll start with the pulse oximeter. <laughs> it is also known as the photoplethysmograph. That's your $10 word for the day. Yeah, I'm not going to even try. <laughs> uh, so it was invented in the 30s, and after several generations and several iterations, by 1985 it was being used in the operating room. And to give it another 10 years, and has moved outside of the operating room into nearly every department in the hospital, including doctor's offices, outside the hospital, and into the pre-hospital world. And today we use it um, in the pre-hospital world. We use it to make clinical decisions. We love it because it's a quick, non-invasive way to get a good reading on your patient's oxygenation level. Okay, so that's the basic history. So what do we find ourselves in today? What's our situation? So the, the item that we wanted to discuss is a group of physicians at the University of Michigan surrounding on their patients. And they were noting on the bedside monitor vital signs like these fairly normal vital signs. Mm -hmm. um, they were noting the vital signs that had been recorded in the chart were also fine. But then when they compared them to the lab values, specifically the arterial blood gas, uh, it showed a much sicker patient, a much uh, different picture and a mismatch between the oxygenation on the arterial blood gas and the pulse oximeter in some patients. Okay. So they decided to dig in and create a research project to find out what were the factors that were causing this mismatch. Okay. So 2020, University of Michigan. Right. So um, the methodology of this research project was a chart review. They reviewed charts from January to July of 2020. Okay. So many of these patients were COVID positive, but right. not all of them. Okay, but COVID throws a whole bunch of weird things at us, right? We lose our sense of smell, a sense of taste. There's a whole bunch of symptoms we didn't know about. How is it that they knew that this wasn't just some weird, like COVID-related weirdo thing? Right. So not every patient that they re, uh, reviewed, not every chart was a COVID patient, a uh, positive patient, but um, they did want to know whether this was a COVID-specific anomaly because COVID has thrown some definite curveballs at us. So they came up with a second cohort of chart reviews, and they pulled these patients from 2014-2015 data. That included 178 different hospitals. So in the January cohort, those patients were admitted patients on oxygen therapy. So okay. it could be nasal cannula all the way up to a ventilator. Mm -hmm. But the 2014 cohort was all critical care ICU patients. Okay. All right. 
So they went back and pulled historical records to make sure that none of those people had anything to do with COVID. Correct. Okay. Very right. Mm-hmm. So um, when they were choosing the patients to include in the study, they adjusted for age, for sex, and for the SOFA score, which is the sequential organ failure assessment. Okay. Any patient with profound diabetes that might uh, impact their peripheral circulation was excluded. Okay. Any patient with a carboxyhemoglobin level of two or greater is probably a heavy smoker, so they were also excluded from the research. All right, so they got rid of anybody who might have some weird pre-existing conditions that might skew the test. That's right. Fair enough. And so here's what we ended up with. In the January cohort, they had about 10,000 chart reviews or pairs of oxygenation levels, Mm -hmm. and the other 35,000 or so came from the 2014 group. Um, that was 8,675 white patients and 1,326 black patients. So nearly 50,000 pairings of pulse oximetry readings with arterial blood gases. And those blood gases had to be drawn within 10 minutes of the recorded pulse oximetry reading. Okay. How did they get 50,000 pairs of samples from 10,000 people? Yeah. So there were patients who had multiple pairings included. So it might have been this morning's blood gas plus yesterday's blood gas plus tonight's blood gas. Okay. So that's a good point. That's a lot of information. So here's what they found. The black patients were three times more likely to have occult hypoxemia, so that mismatch that they were noticing at the bedside, Mm -hmm. um, than the white patients. Um, That amounted to 12% of the black patient population, whereas 4% of the white population was found to have occult hypoxemia. And the difference could be as high as 8 percentage point difference on the pulse ox versus the blood gas. Okay, so it might read 100, but they might only have 92% blood oxygenation. Blood oxygenation. That's right. (laughs) All right, so what... How might you treat a patient differently if you think that they're in the safe zone, but they're actually in a danger zone? What might you not do? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So pulse oximetry is used to make a lot of clinical decisions. Uh, It might be the difference between feeling like someone was safe to discharge home versus stay and be admitted to the hospital. It could be the difference between admitting them to the floor versus the ICU. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could impact the oxygen delivery. So whether this patient goes on a cannula or a non-rebreather or a ventilator or what their ventilator settings were. Um, Imagine a nurse in triage who is quickly trying to sort between six or eight sick patients and trying to figure out which one needs to go back right now versus which one can wait. Uh, And certainly we use pulse oximetry to make clinical decisions in the pre-hospital environment as well. Okay, so it can affect your patient's health. It can affect the management of the hospital. Are there any other considerations? Uh, the other point is that the Medicare Medicaid actually reimburses for home oxygen at a certain pulse oximetry level, where a higher level would not be reimbursed. Oh, okay. So if it says that they have 100%, but they really only have 92%, they might not be getting that benefit taken care of. That's right. Okay, so that's a problem. All right. So this was when? 2020. So this uh, this important information that was discovered was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2020 as a letter to, research letter to the editor. Okay, so that's important. Remember that, right? That comes back later. All right, so that is our um, sort of uh, history. That's the situation we're in right now. So for some background, explain to me again how a pulse oximeter works. So the pulse oximeter has um, two light emitting diodes. One is red and one is infrared. They alternate. 
and they are measuring the saturation of oxygen on the red blood cell. That saturation, the light saturation, goes through a phototransistor to a microprocessor, and each manufacturer has a um, proprietary algorithm that then changes that light saturation into a number. And the number is what we see represented on our monitor. So anywhere from about 94% to 100 is considered normal. Okay. Um, where I work, if the uh, pulse ox level reads 93 or below, you need to do an intervention. Okay. So this pulse oximeter is the more common type where you clamp it onto a fingertip. So going back to the fingernail story, fingernail polish story. So if you have a dark fingernail polish on and you clip it there so the light may not be able to bounce through it, right? So that's what's interfering with that. Mm -hmm. So that is an artificial or like external uh, environmental factor that's affecting with it. Mm -hmm. There have to be other ones. What other things should people keep in mind that might interfere with the way that works? So one point to bring out is it doesn't only have to be clipped onto the finger. There are designs that go to the ear. You can put it on the nair and okay. there's one specifically designed for the forehead. Mm -hmm. We even put it on toes. And on neonates, it can go on the foot or the hand. Okay. But for the external factors, we do have some, um, a little bit of data and some episodic evidence that um, external pigments can, in, fa in fact, impact it. Mm -hmm. So the nail polish research, uh, there is a body of nail polish research. It's split about 50-50 whether nail polish really does impact the light absorption. Yeah. But basically, the finding is the darker the nail polish, the more likely it is to have an impact. There's a simple fix, a couple of simple fixes. One is remove the nail polish. The other is instead of placing it on the finger this way, you can actually just slide it to the side like this. It doesn't have to sit on the nail bed. All right, so your ER nurse, just turn it to the side, but if for a longer stay, just take off the nail polish. That's right. Fine. Um, another factor uh, that we see in um, incidents is fingerprinting ink. Ah, okay, so wash your hands first. Right. Got it. And then the semi-permanent tattooing from henna mm -hmm. okay. could theoretically uh, impact the pulse oximetry reading. And then finally, we've had some neonates who've had meconium staining on their hands or their feet, and that also could impact the absorption of the light and give a false reading. Okay. So basically, we knew that these were already problems. There might be problems, and there are ways around that. But these are external factors. So that's the background that, that sets this up. How can you assess the situation in this context now? Okay. So we do have some previous research that is specific to black patients and the accuracy of pulse oximetry going back as far as 2005. Okay. At the University of California at San Francisco, three physicians conducted a research project to answer this specific question. And I think it's really important to note that Dr. John Severinghouse was one of those physicians. Uh -huh. He's the inventor of the arterial blood gas. Oh. And that is the gold standard for... Um, oxygenation measurement. Okay, so he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> All right. So um, this research project included 21 healthy non-smokers. Mm -hmm. They were young, 24 to 27-year-olds. Anyone that had cardiovascular disease, a lung condition, obesity, or diabetes was excluded. Mm -hmm. um, 11 of the subjects were black, 10 were white, and there were no Asian or Hispanics represented in this 21 um, volunteers. Okay, so that is a very small sample size. Yes. So that is one of the criticisms of this uh, research project is mm -hmm. that there were just 21 volunteers. It is a small N number. Right. But the way they conducted this research project is pretty interesting. They took uh, pulse oximeters and placed them on each of the pointer, middle, and ring finger of both hands okay. of each subject. So that's six data points. Those pulse oximeters were all different manufacturers. Got it. They also placed a 22-gauge radial 
um, a, uh, a line. Oh, right here. So that they could pull off arterial blood gases in real time. Okay. And then what they did for each of those volunteers is they took those seven measurements at 100% saturation. Then they dialed them down to 90% saturation, took seven more measurements. 80%, 70 and on down to 60% saturation. All right. So six fingers a bunch of times at a bunch of different levels, plus the blood thingy. All right. So, okay. <laughs> so it equals over a 1,000 data points, right. which actually does make this very robust research Okay. Uh, with just 21 volunteers. And the results found what? So what they found was up to a 7% bias in the black volunteers. These are young, healthy volunteers. Uh, and that bias is most widely spread uh, when you get to less than 80% pulse ox saturation. Okay, so those are similar to the numbers that we are going to see 15 years later in 2020. Right. All right. And keeping in mind that the 2020 patients were sick inpatients, okay. some of them critical care. These were young and healthy patients. Okay. But it was the same, um, the same number. Okay. So what have they done between then and now? So the conclusion of those researchers was that this needs to be expanded and explored further. And so they did that. Two years later, the same group repeated this research project but expanded it. They had twice as many subjects, this time 39, okay. half men, half women. All right. um, they also expanded the age range to 19 through 44. And this time they categorized their skin color as light, dark, or intermediate. They did the same thing, six different pulse oximeters on their fingers, a radial A-line, draw off arterial blood gases at 100, 90, 80, 70, and on down to 60. Okay, so they have the same protocol, but they just sort of varied the factors a little bit to be a little bit more inclusive. Right, expanded okay. it, Okay, cool. the numbers. And then what they found was an 8% spread, again, in the patients who were dark pigmented. Um, and more profound, the lower the pulse oximetry got. Okay, so 13 years ago. We already have a paper that shows what they found in 2020. That's right. Okay. Great. <laughs> All right. So that's the history. That's the current situation. That brings us today and what's happening now. All right. So back in February, you saw a magazine article, a newspaper article in your local newspaper that said this something about pulse oximetry not working on darker skin tones. And you posted it on Facebook and it was an uproar. <laughs> Like, a lot of people hit back. They responded only to the title and threw a lot of questions your way. So these are some questions that when you talk to people in your practice about, you can uh, have some answers prepared for them. So what were the major criticisms that you saw based on this clickbait article? Right. So it's important for clinicians to understand the clinical implications. But what happened with this is it went from healthcare uh, forums and blogs to uh, the mainstream media. And in the mainstream media, uh, lay people didn't understand the research and they didn't read the research letter. And so things became really unclear and there were questions and criticisms that I saw over and over again. So as clinicians, you should probably be prepared to answer these kind of comments. Okay. Um, the first one that I saw over and over again was people commenting, how can a machine be racist? Right. And so the answer to that is, Having a racial bias in technology is not the same as racism. Okay. A machine is not one or the other. It is uh, outputting what has been programmed to receive from the input. Okay. But what we do know from the, the research, and this is stipulated, this is not something that we're supposing, we know this from the evidence and from the data, that the technology was tested in light-skinned people. Okay. So this isn't a problem with the design. This is a problem with the designer's approach towards their design. To the technology, yeah. that's right. Okay, all right, what else? 
The other thing that was in the mainstream article was they talked about how the patients in the University of Michigan cohort were identified as black or as white. Um, and there was confusion in the public because they didn't realize that these were chart reviews. So what that means is the researchers were looking in the chart at the pulse oximetry reading at the labs and then at the demographic sheet to see if the patient was identified as a black patient or a white patient. And that was very confusing to the general public who couldn't understand how you would identify as black or white. Okay. As opposed to the fact that this was just demographic information off the paper. That's right. Okay. All right. And then the final thing that was a criticism is the fact that this was a research letter to the editor okay. in the in the New England Journal right. of Medicine. Right. And so this is important because it was published in December of 2020. Mm -hmm. So when the clinicians found this significant mismatch in a population that was disproportionately impacted by COVID, mm -hmm. um, and we were gearing up for the worst peak of the COVID pandemic. If you recall, January was the deadliest month to date yep. for COVID in our country and worldwide. So this information was pushed out as quickly as it could um, to get this information in clinicians' hands to help treat these patients uh, equitably. And the quickest way to do that was with a research letter to the editor. Right. So a research letter to an editor of a scholarly journal is not the same as actually publishing your paper. But we've talked a lot on the podcast, we've had a bunch of episodes about this, how it takes a long time to get new ideas into medical practice. And here we're at this sort of tipping point. Um, the professionals knew that things were going to get really, really bad in January, and they had this really significant information, and they wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. And the most reputable and most immediate way to do so was to submit a letter to the editor, whereas most people thought, oh, a letter to the editor is just like some rando's opinion about something that isn't really backed up. But they had done their research. They couldn't get the paper published in time, so they published a letter instead. And that actually had the right effect because it, it hit the news and it started getting people's attention. And that's how it turned it into this clickbait article that you found about, which brought us to you guys to be able to tell you what's going on. That's right. Okay. So we hope that the full research paper will be forthcoming. Yes. All right. Great. So they're too slow to publish. So now, without having to wait for publication, we have this information and are able to bring it to you. Okay, so some recommendations. I'm not a nurse. You should know this by now. But I have some ideas about okay. what I would do based with this information. I can't wait to hear them. Okay, so if you know that your black patients are likely to skew 7 to 8% lower than what the pulse ox readings are, mm -hmm. why don't you just assume that all of your black patients are 7 to 8 points lower than what they read and treat them accordingly? Yeah. So that is a suggestion that has been recommended. Okay. Uh, remember that 12% of the black population was impacted, so it wasn't everyone. Okay. And also you ha have here a graphic representation of what 75% oxygenation looks like and what 100% of your blood red blood cells would look like okay. if they were oxygenated. The pulse oximeter only goes to 100%, but you can be oxygenated higher than 100%. Oh. You can be at two, 300%, and this is not benign. This is called hyperoxia, and um, we know that theoretically it can cause oxygen-free radicals. It can damage the endothelium of the cells, so not benign. Although the critical care pulmonologists do say this is the worst, best recommendation. <laughs> okay, worst, best, and least worst. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's not great. It's but not great. It's an option. Yeah, you can't treat 100% of your patients for what affects 12% because you might actually make them. Worse by adding more oxygen than you already get. You're definitely going to cause harm. Okay, so you're going to cause harm. All right, great. So then why not use the 
arterial blood gas test on all of your patients. Just make that your standard. Yeah, and this is the recommendation for the short term, mm -hmm. that in your critically ill patients, you correlate your pulse oximetry with an arterial blood gas. Okay. Um, the uh, the problem with this is that works well in the ICU, it works well maybe in the inpatient setting, but remember our nurse who's in triage, mm -hmm. uh, trying to sort through quickly those six uh, or eight patients and find the sick one. This test takes time, it's invasive, it's painful, it's costly, mm -hmm. and that's not going to be something that you could quickly and rapidly do for six or eight patients in triage. Similarly, it's not available in all pre-hospital settings. Not all ambulances or helicopters have this technology. Okay. So it's certainly not a perfect fix, but for the critically ill, this is the recommendation for the short term. Okay, so pulse ox is super convenient. It's just not accurate. This is super accurate, but it's not super convenient. Right. Okay, so okay. So what do you do? <laughs> so this is our long-term solution is to demand better technology okay. that works for all of our patients. All right. How do you demand better technology? What do you do to get better technology in people's hands? Well, in the six months since this article was published in um, in December, okay. the Lancet has published a letter from some critical care um, trainees demanding better technology for the black population. Okay. Uh, in addition, the British medical uh, British Medical Journal has a similar letter that is also saying that this research needs to be paid attention to and changes need to be made based on it. Right. There is a manufacturer of a pulse oximeter who has posted on their website reassuring clinicians that their uh, technology was tested on 1,000 white patients as well as 1,000 black patients. Okay. And it is important to note that in the 2005 and 2007 research studies, that brand was the one with the least bias at just 2%. Okay, so better technology does exist. Yes. Okay, so writing a letter to the Lancet and to the British Medical Journal is their way of saying we either want our hospitals to buy the better model the one that is tested more widely and has a lower margin of error, or we want the other technologies, the other manufacturers, to start testing their models on better skin tones to make them more accurate as well. That's right. Okay, so there are ways to better technology. It's not an insurmountable hill. That's right. Okay, great. So the Lancet and the British Medical Journal are both UK. What's happening here in America about this right now? So the FDA, because of this uh, letter from the to, from 2020 December has issued an FDA statement. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how the pulse oximeter is all over the place in the clinical setting, but now because of COVID, people are buying them over the counter and they have them in their households. Lay people are more familiar with pulse oximetry and they are making decisions about whether to go and seek treatment or not based on the pulse oximeter. So the over-the-counter pulse oximeters are not um, regulated by the FDA, only the prescription ones that are used in a clinical setting are. Um, but the FDA has issued a statement that says there is research that shows that dark pigmented skin can impact the accuracy of a pulse oximeter, and it may show a higher reading than is actual, and so you need to seek care. Okay, so that's kind of wishy-washy. Okay, so that's why we're bringing it here, because so now they've said something, now we need to get everybody else on board with this, right? So bring this information back to your practice, um, bring it into your practice, bring it to your hospitals. Do your research, read the papers, and find out more about how to make uh, this technology inclusive, right? I mean, translating to something that tests out 2% is good for everybody, and it doesn't exclude a big portion of the population. Yeah, so. in, the, in the United States, about 13% of our population is black. In the place that I practice medicine, it's more like 50-50. Yeah. So I want accurate technology for all of my patients. That's what we do is we advocate for yeah. patients. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we hope you learned something and please bring this back to your hospitals for them to know that as well.